Hey, Ollie here. I think you're going to love today's episode. It's fascinating. We're going to talk to one of the leading experts in functional medicine in oncology. You know, whether you have experienced cancer yourself, you know someone that has, you're going through it, or know someone who is, I think you're going to draw a huge amount of value from today's episode. You're going to learn so much. But also, there is a lot in there as well about the preventative approach as well and things you can be doing now on a daily basis to reduce the chances of you um, experiencing that yourself. So without further ado, let's do the episode. So season three of the Gutology podcast, we're already in episode three. I'm particularly uh, excited about uh, today's episode. Uh, Dr. Nina Fuller-Chevelle is an award-winning Oxbridge-trained uh, medical doctor, scientist and educator, and now one of the leading forces in the world of integrative cancer support. She's also the director of the Synthesis Clinic, which specializes in women's health and integrative cancer care. Uh, Dr. Nina, really nice to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm fascinated to start with. Um, it's, not, it, it's not very often, well, it's maybe becoming slightly more common now that somebody sort of migrates from a traditional medicine start and career into more of a sort of functional and integrative approach. And I think that must give you a very unique insight into sort of healthcare where where did you you know you were oxbridge sort of trained what at what point did this all did you become aware of this and start to sort of be drawn towards the sort of more sort of functional side of medicine well it's quite an interesting question actually because i'm a little bit weird in terms of medicine's my third degree so actually, I went into medicine after training as a nutritional therapist, and my first love is originally natural sciences at Cambridge. So I kind of weaved in and out of, I guess you would call the conventional, uh, while adding other tools to my toolkit. But in terms of becoming aware of things, I think what's interesting is that my, the way that I grew up was very different to what we consider kind of normal life and the way kids grow up now. So... I grew up in Belarus, so I wasn't born in the UK. I grew up there where you know, food was fresh. You ran around all day. You know, it, it wasn't formal exercise, but physical activity, fresh food, community connections, all of that was a part of daily life. And so were things like herbal medicine, for example. Russia and Belarus and all of the, a lot of these countries have quite um, a significant tradition of using herbal medicine. So that was kind of the norm. Think back to being a child and say, you know, there was an ear infection or a bug going around and stuff like that. The first thing wasn't in Belarus that you would just get an antibiotic prescription, perhaps. Well, it was it was sort of a bit of a balance because sometimes obviously when things were severe, of course, they were still treated with antibiotics. I also had the slight misfortune of um, being a household where there was still smoking indoors, so I certainly did get quite a few chest infections that did require antibiotics. <laughs> uh, that kind of destroyed my mucociliary escalator rather nicely. But thinking about in general, like if think of first aid, first aid was actually more broad than just using medications. Um, and I think it was more about the philosophy of life. The philosophy of life was very much more in line with the way that nature worked. Things were seasonal. I still remember planting potatoes in my garden. My, my grandmother used to grow most of her own crops. We used to have a little mini orchard. You know, things used to be bartered. <laughs> so it's quite interesting because then, of course, you come into this. And I, I came to the UK at the at age of 15 into an English boarding school. So that was quite a fascinating experience because I could not recognize food. I'm like, what is this brown mush? And can I recognize any ingredients? And I would say, what is this? And nope, everybody would just shrug. And that was very, very interesting in terms of food. So I remember distinctly because I was so appalled by it, uh, basically surviving on a couple of meals that I could recognize for about a year until I, I, um, I got used to it and started sneaking normal food into the boarding, boarding house room. 
Um, and then I went into Cambridge and I was always very scientifically minded. That's something that was very much at the forefront of my mind. And um, so I trained in natural sciences, very biomedical. So a lot of you know, molecular and cellular pathology, which kind of got me into uh, doing some short cancer research projects in my time there, um, as well as pathology, pharmacology, all of that very much by biomedically based natural sciences. Um, and during that time as well, I was doing some running, uh, so long distance running. So I was quite interested in terms of how nutrition was going to fuel me. And that's when I started getting a little bit more technical. Um, and then I came out of university and I went, uh, probably don't want to do gut into research fully right now. And so I went into medical education. And so that was running conferences for doctors, creating educational programs. Um, but I went through an interesting time with my own health at that point, because for certainly about yeah, probably 12 to 18 months, I was working cr absolutely crazy hours doing this job. And even though I was kind of in my early to mid-20s, it did hit me hard. I remember you know, being at this medical conference and getting four or five hours of sleep on, on the trot for probably a, at least a week or, or two. And that was on the back of already working 17-hour days in the run-up to this conference. So I had hit a bit of a burnout phase in my own health and well-being. And I went, okay, this is not working. Whatever this is this isn't working and I needed to find a better way of, of managing things. And as I took time out of work to recover, um, and obviously there were various labels attached as you go to the doctor and they kind of go, meh, have a chronic fatigue syndrome label. I'm like, yeah, I don't, don't really know about this one, but it's okay. And so I dived deep into nutrition, what might underlie things like burnout, HPA axis dysfunction, all of those sides of, sides of things. Um, it was my own exploration of, of, of my recovery and my trajectory that put me into um, really practical interest of it. And I remember at one point um, sitting there and for someone who used to eat you know, medical textbooks and science textbooks for breakfast, I could not read a book. I literally could sit there and I could not read a children's book. I could not re read Harry Potter. I could only listen to books. And even that in short periods of time. And that was petrifying to someone like me who is normally functions 100 miles an hour. Um, but I got myself back again. It's, it was all a combination of various things, you know, plenty of nutrition, certainly, but also other modalities. And then I went in and trained at ION. So the Institute for Optimum Nutrition, I trained as a nutritional therapist part time as I was continuing to work. And then I said, OK, well, this is great. However... I want to go deeper and I want to help more complex patients. And so then I went back and did medicine. And that was very, very interesting. And I think you probably find it fascinating because I went back into a very conventional way of doing things, but I went in with my eyes wide open. So unlike a lot of people come into medicine straight afresh and they kind of get very much trained in this very algorithmic model, I came into it, number one, as a scientist who has a very, very different way of approaching things. And number two, as someone who already understands nutrition and lifestyle as a backbone of human health. So that's how I got into that. And as I came out of that experience and went into the NHS and saw the many failures of, of the, trying to use an acute disease model to treat chronic disease, um, and then went through a breast cancer diagnosis. I kind of re-entered the sort of integrative medicine space uh, with you know, herbal medicine, yoga, mindfulness and other qualifications along the way. When you think about, um, you know, so many people will think about the NHS in the UK as it is this phenomenal entity, isn't it? But perhaps at its core, it's a life-saving service, not a life-optimizing service, perhaps. Do you think ever the two shall meet? You know, you've seen both sides of the coin here. Do you think there is the potential in the NHS where they can bring more integri integrative medicine and, 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 and diets into their approach? Or do you think the NHS is always going to be a life-saving service? It's always going to be kind of overstretched. What's your sort of like hope for it? I think there's going to be a tiered approach. I think that we already see a big movement for lifestyle medicine going on certainly across the uh, general popu uh, you know, the GP population. And I think people are more aware of the role of lifestyle 
And unsurprisingly, the recent pandemics also brought it to the forefront very nicely. So actually, I think mm. both the public and also GPs and healthcare professionals working in the NHS are more aware of the role, at least of lifestyle medicine as the basic tool. And to be honest, if we can do lifestyle medicine very well for population level as public health, I think we're going to cut down the amount of chronic health problems by an absolute mile. You're talking there just about, you know, the, the giving a, a, a solid foundation in, in, in you know, uh, what foods are, you should be eating and what foods you shouldn't be eating, how much you should exercise, alcohol consumption, those kind of things really at a broad level. Absolutely. So, you know, those foundations of nutrition, physical activity, you know, sleep cycle, emotional well-being and just harm reduction practices like you said, uh, said uh, you know, alcohol, smoking, drugs, etc., so those are kind of the foundations. If we could do that well for public health level properly, then I think we already have won a huge amount of the battle against chronic disease. But we are not doing it consistently, despite the number of times that it is in the nice guidelines. Lifestyle and lifestyle advice should be offered prior to trying interventions, blah, 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 blah. Everybody bypasses step A and goes straight to step B as and takes out the drugs. Now, everyone is a general, massive generalization. We're seeing a big pushback, actually, from the medical community as well now saying, I want to de-prescribe and I want to rationally prescribe. And I do want to understand more about lifestyle medicine. And there are grassroots movements like NutriTank that come from medical students who want to know about nutrition and lifestyle straight up from medical school and want to be able to counsel their patients appropriately. So I think we are coming into a more equilibrated health service. I don't think we're there yet. Do you think that there is, when it comes to, you know, certainly the health service in the UK and, and maybe perhaps in America as well, even though obviously large parts of it are privatised, that there is a, there is a, is it a lack of education at a foundational training level about nutrition, lifestyle medicine, or is it at the when they're actually on the front line, there's just not enough time and resource, it's easier to prescribe a drug than it is to, to really try and get to the root of what's going on? It's both, and I think that we've probably suffered from the mentality where we don't really always see the wood for the trees. So as a scientist, you're interested in the why and you're interested in networks and you're interested in what the consequences are going to be down the line. And I think that there's been so much firefighting on the front line in the NHS and any health service, to be honest, then you're right. It is easier to take out the pill. It's also easier not to think about what the consequences of that pill or of not sorting people out are going to be down the line. And certainly that's when I saw when I was working in the NHS in general medicine, you know, as I was admitting people into hospital, you know, you just pop them up and send them out. That's all you do. And then I go, okay, well, I'll see, I'll see them in six weeks time or eight weeks time, whatever it is, because I've done absolutely nothing to change their overall trajectory. All I have done is prop them up and just resolve their acute life-threatening or significant illness that I need to sort out at the moment. But they're still having all of their problems with their diabetes, hypertension, cardiometabolic syndrome, all of the other things that are going on in their life. And that's, that was actually highly dispiriting and very depressing to me as a doctor. Um, certainly affected my mental health, actually, as I was working in the NHS. I was going, I'm working so hard. You know, you're working all these crazy hours and you're putting so much of yourself into it because you really care, but you're not getting the outcomes. And, and at that point... Even before I got my breast cancer diagnosis, which kind of forced me to rethink of what my, my balance was going to be going forward, I kind of said, this is, this is craziness. But you are so institutionalized in a way when you work within this ecosystem that it's accepted as normal. I don't think it's normal for a 45-year-old or 50-year-old to be on four or five drugs. I don't think it's normal that by 55, 60 people accumulate up to 10 drugs by that point. I don't think polypharmacy should be normal. Is it fair to say that there's a, you know, there's a, a direct correlation between like health outcomes, mortality rates and the amount of the multiples of medicine that people are taking at a certain age? What I, you know, what I mean by that is the more, med, the, the more multiple medicines you're taking, does that directly correlate to your, you know, your health expectancies later in life? 
Good question. Um, I actually, I'm not sure I looked at the data recently, but I think that it will be confounded by the fact that if people are taking more medication, they have more chronic health problems. So how do you detangle the effect of the chronic health problems versus the medications they're taking? It's not that easy. But what you're, what you're saying as well is, though, is that what we're, what we're, what we're not thinking about is if a, a medicine is being prescribed is if there's not a understanding about what the end of that prescription cycle is, therefore, what is the long-term impact that comes from taking that medication, which could, I imagine, in some cases, create other problems? And also, absolutely. And also, there's this whole thing of not working at the root, right? That's what we are passionate about when we're using you know, integrative medicine, we're using personalized medicine approaches. We want to know why. Why is this person experiencing this health problem right now? That's what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm, I'm the person who's always asking why. The NHS, in the NHS, the doctors are very much trained in asking what, right? What symptoms do you have? What disease diagnosis, what disease label am I going to give you? And then what drugs am I going to prescribe you or what surgery or whatever else? So asking why is not really part of what we do actually no one asks why nobody goes why did this person why is this person getting chronic recurrent UTIs actually most of the time people don't ask unless there's a structural limitation that can sort out with surgery most of the time people don't really look very deeply into the why and of course that's what we do and that's what I find so satisfying because if we can catch people I'm going to use cardiometabolic conditions as an example if we can catch people that first presentation of where they're presenting with, I don't know, maybe slightly raised blood pressure or their first you know, high cholesterol level, if we can actually look at what's underlying that at that point, what lifestyle habits are actually generating these problems and intervene, then we've seen them, all of that cardiometabolic syndrome conditions later down the line because we've intervened at that first point and we've saved the person a lot of problems and we've also seen the NHS tons of money dealing with the consequences of this down the line. One area that I'm absolutely fascinated to talk to you about is is oncology and what I really think would be helpful for our kind of audience to understand is starting with people that already have a they are diagnosed with cancer we'll, we'll talk a little bit about preventative later on but let's say that somebody is is diagnosed and I'm sure there are people listening right now that have diagnosis and and, and that certainly here in the UK there is a set pathway so they'll 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 go into the NHS they'll go into an oncology department when you think about a, a functional approach to oncology is that something it's I'm assuming it's not an and or but it's something that's done in conjunction with traditional therapies I'd love I'd love to hear a little bit more about that so yes, as BSIO, so the British Society for Integrative Oncology, we define it as the rational combination of the best of conventional medicines, that's your normal oncological treatment, the standard of care, with nutrition, lifestyle, psychological and emotional well-being, and evidence-informed complementary healthcare approaches. It's about thinking about everything. I would say it's about picking the best from the widest toolkit in a way that is personalized to this person right now with their current needs. So when somebody starts working, let's say with yourself or a functional practitioner that's trained with you, they will be there will be a link between you, the consultant that's dealing with them, I'm, sh- I'm assuming. And what what does it look like from, you know, it, give us an idea, right? Somebody comes to you, let's say they've got a diagnosis of, 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 of bowel cancer, you're aware of where they are in their cycle, perhaps they're having sort of chemotherapy. What does the structure look like from your end and how can you support that person? What does it look like? So the first point is, of course, that initial intake consultation. So, you know, we have the luxury in the private sector of being able to spend time with our patients, which is fantastic because complex disorders like cancer need our time and attention. That's how really we can make the most difference. So usually even before anybody comes to me for their 90 minute initial consultation or to one of our nutrition specialists, quite often people go to them first before they even come and see me. We always look at the four foundations. So we always will look at nutrition, physical activity, sleep and psycho-emotional well-being. Everybody gets a prescription based on those four domains straight up, no question. 
In terms of personalization, that's where we really need to have even at least the basic test results and a really good understanding about what kind of medication someone's on, as well as what challenges they might be going through for, for this particular treatment. So the approach is dynamic. You know, what suits someone during their chemotherapy and manages their side effects will be different to hormone therapy, will be different to radiotherapy, will be different to perisurgical management, so perioperative management. So that will be all, all dynamic and it, we would change our approach according to what the person's side effects, their needs, their, their current biochemistry as well as their treatment plan is going to be. Is there, like right now... A, a particular diet that you favor with somebody that is going through uh, cancer treatment that there is data su to suggest that it's really, it really supports that, that process? The reason one diet fits all, that's the problem. I think there's some foundational principles that can fit most people. So the anti-inflammatory diet is probably the principles behind that tend to be the widest variety of the population. But that does not that does not cover the macro ratios. It does not cover some of the specific foods someone might need. It doesn't cover a million other things. So, I would get away from the fact that there is a cancer diet. Right, there isn't a cancer mm -hmm. diet. Full stop. And um, and different people's nutrition needs are going to be different. You know, if I'm trying to back someone out of prediabetes quickly before their radiotherapy, I will use one nutritional approach versus a general maintenance program for someone who has been through primary breast cancer treatment and is looking at recurrence prevention. So these can be miles apart and I, there is no one size fits all, there is no cancer diet. You know, it's not all about going vegan, it's not all about going keto and it isn't all about doing anything. It is about having a personalized approach but I guess if I thought about the foundational diet that you can build on, an anti-inflammatory diet makes the most sense. And so uh, for people that aren't aware exactly what an, uh, an anti-inflammatory diet is, what are, the, what are the broad outlines of it? So the broad outlines are really some of the things that we might want to avoid would be things like high, any of the highly processed foods and you know, refined sugars we would want to minimize, minimization or avoidance of alcohol, for example. We'd want to try and avoid all processed meat, full stop, because actually it's been very well documented to have an increased risk of cancer from multiple cancer types. And we want to limit red meat. So if you are going to be eating red meat, and some people do eat red meat, then no more than 500 grams per week usually is what is advised. And that's you know very well documented. World Cancer Research Fund recommendations, a massive report um, with hundreds of references. And that's kind of really, really foundational bits. And then what we want to increase is, of course, we want to increase colourful aspects of our food. So we'd want to ideally aim for 7 to 10 portions of vegetables, 1 to 2 portions of low-sugar fruit a day. We would want to have plenty of herbs and spices. Looking at particularly the fats, the fat balance needs to be in the right way. So we would say that the Mediterranean diet studies such as PREDIMED have conclusively demonstrated a number of benefits for putting extra virgin olive oil at the top of your fat pyramid. So we are looking at avoiding processed refined seed oils like sunflower oil with cooking with this at high temperature for example. We want to try and put extra virgin olive oil, ideally organic if you can get it at the top of the pyramid, with avocado oil maybe for some of the higher temperature cooking, because it's just more stable, has a very neutral flavor. You know, avocados, nuts, seeds, small wild oily fish, so the smash fish is what we call it in the middle, and small amounts of saturated fat, um, and avoiding all trans fats and all of the other really damaged fats as much as we can do. And that will have a more um, anti-inflammatory balance. And we will need to watch that omega-3, omega-6 ratio, because of course that's been massively skewed in the modern diet from you know being the usual three to two omega sixes to one omega three to now you know you have ratios 20 40 my one of our patients came to us with 54 to one and when it comes to um you know there's been a lot of research recently we've seen a lot particularly in you know i would say in the last two to three years the world of mushrooms for example has you know has has, has become a real uh, interesting point 
There is obviously um, these phenomenal pharmaceutical drugs that are used and, and powerful drugs that are used with, with chemotherapy and obviously radiotherapy as well. Are there certain supplements, whether it be mushrooms or other supplements, that to you, you think are incredibly powerful in conjunction with these targeted therapies when dealing in the sort of oncology space? What, what are you most excited about? Oh, gosh. I don't think I can pick one thing I'm most excited about. It's it'd be like asking me to pick a favorite child. That just doesn't work. Um, no, I have to well, say, give, I mean... Give me some examples. <laughs> well, I think everything has a place. I mean, supplements are such a, such a broad term anyway. I mean, we can talk about vitamin D optimization, you know, some of the recent trials are saying, you know, physical activity, vitamin D, omega-3 is the trifecta to cut down and prevent tons of cancer, you know, but it all needs to be in context. So I don't pick any one supplement. I think the things that I use the most of, yes, medicinal mushrooms are one of them, but dietary mushrooms are also medicinal. And so thinking about some of the food groups that I will always get people to incorporate, I'd look at them doing their cruciferous vegetables, for example, as well as normal dietary mushrooms, getting a really good variety. Yes, medicinal mushrooms are great, and actually they have a massive history of use, which most people are not aware of. You know, products like this have been used in traditional Chinese medicine for literally thousands of years. And even in conventional care, in the Far East, we have licensed mushroom, mushroom preparations since the 70s and 80s that have been licensed to be used alongside conventional care. So they have a really good safety record in terms of being able to use alongside it for somebody that you know mushrooms to them are portobello mushrooms in the supermarket you know and there'll be a lot of people listening to this that are saying like what cancer and mushrooms like <laughs> give us an idea of a, a a medicinal mushroom and actually you know what's you know why they can be so sort of powerful but even the white button mushrooms, to be honest, can be powerful. So I know there are some far fancier mushrooms that we use usually, but, you know, any mushroom will have beta-glucans and will have some of the prebiotic properties for the gut microbiome, as well as those beta-glucans that can actually look at modulating our immune system, which is the reason why we use them in cancer care, for example. And we're now thinking it's this combination of effect on immune system plus the gut microbiome that gives mushrooms its power. And I guess thinking about some of the fancier mushrooms, looking at oyster mushrooms, looking at shiitake mushrooms, they're the two most common things you can find in your supermarket that have good medical value. There's also mushrooms you just will not be able to eat because they're far too woody <laughs> or they're horribly bitter. And these are the things we put in capsules for a very, very good reason. They're the things we use as medicinal mushrooms. But to me, we must not disregard any mushroom. You know, dietary mushrooms still have a lot of use and we should be using them as close as possible on a daily basis if you can tolerate them well, as well as our cruciferous vegetables, as well as our lovely low sugar berries and all the herbs and spices you could possibly get your hands on. And so when it comes to, to utilizing, let's say, those sort of let's medicinal, medicinal mushrooms in that case, that the reason that practitioners are using these, let's say in the, in the case of uh, oncology, is actually, is it to do with that modulation of the immune system? Because the immune system is being hit, it's not about particularly fighting the cancer, it's about supporting the immune system when it's, take, it's under such a barrage, is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And actually our immune system plays an absolute essential role in cancer control. And that's, that's really important because it's not a direct effect. We're not trying to deliver cytotoxic treatment like chemotherapy with medicinal mushrooms, but we also know that our immune system needs to be in the optimal state. And quite often, the cancer treatments that we give are cytotoxic to rapidly dividing cells, which is not only the cancer cells, but also the immune cells, which is one of the most common effects of, say, chemotherapy. The side effects are on the bone marrow, and you get neutropenias and lymphopenias. We've got the low white cell counts because they're the rapidly dividing cells that we need to replenish. So what we aim to do with medicinal mushrooms is really support best immune system balance, as well as support the gut microbiome as well. So that's another thing that gets a massive hit with a lot of conventional cancer treatments. And so when it comes to the, the microbiome, what sort of role do um, 
firstly, the, the, the state of your gut health coming into, um, you know, cancer treatment. And also the, 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 there's two questions here and the use of probiotics in conjunction. What, what, what is the evidence at the moment to say that they do have an impact? Well, I guess it's, it's very situation dependent. That's where things get complicated. People just want quite often an easy answer. And I always say, it will, I, I will be the annoying person who will say it depends. But, but let's, I guess, wind it back. We do know that a number of cancers are associated with what we would call dysbiosis. And that's an imbalance in the gut microbiome, which involves all sorts of microorganisms. You know, there's some really interesting uh, studies are being done not on just the GI microbiome, but say, for example, the breast microbiome. We used to think the breast was sterile. It absolutely is not. And we're looking at not just the bacterial proportion, but even the virome, for example, in that setting. We know that there's been some very well-established uh, examples of bacterial involvement in the gut with you know, H. pylori and gastric cancer. That's been you know, established for a very long time. But also we're now looking at certain pro-inflammatory bacteria such as Fusobacterium nucleatum and the link to colorectal cancer, and that's been quite strongly established now. Um, we know that, say, in breast cancer, for example, the composition of the gut microbiome before treatment is different between patients with breast cancer to, compared to healthy controls. So, and the way that we are potentially thinking, I mean, there's many, many mechanisms by which it can happen, but one of the key mechanisms may be that a dysbiosis creates a chronic and pro-inflammatory state. And chronic low-grade inflammation has been now very well established in, in generating higher risk of anything from cardiometabolic disease to cancer. So that may be one of the mechanisms we are thinking about. And then, of course, you get into treatment. And then chemotherapy changes your gut microbiome. And again, we've established that in a number of different trials. And you get, can get quite a lot of GI effects, whether it is chemotherapy-induced diarrhea, or you can get nausea and vomiting, you can get problems with radiotherapy. Uh, yeah, radiotherapy, particularly pelvic and abdominal radiotherapy, will also cause significant GI side effects. And this is where probiotics can have a role. We have to be a bit careful with chemotherapy as, because when you have really profound neutropenia, of course, that will really knock your immune system for six. And so very profound neutropenia, you have to be careful even with probiotics. Can you just explain neutropenia? Yeah. Sure. So neutropenia is, is very low neutrophil counts. And this is where it puts you at risk of really overwhelming bacterial infections. So sepsis, really, from getting a relatively innocuous bacterial infection that you or I will be able to fight off very, very easily. Someone who has very, very low neutrophil counts will not be able to fight it off. Now, and, and, and therefore they might get a fever and they might need to be admitted for IV antibiotics, for example, because at that point, early treatment and prompt treatment is actually life-saving because they haven't got their own immune system containing the infection. Now, what we've now established is that there's no evidence for what's called the neutropenic diet. Try to avoid anything raw or anything that might be have yogurt in it and all of that other stuff that we thought at the time we were really concerned about. And now there's been very well established that this is all a lot of rubbish and we should be able to eat what we like from that perspective. However, we are not quite there with really high-dose probiotics in patients who are really profoundly neutropenic. So what I would normally say, I tend to earn the side of caution, the kind of do-no-harm principle first. And we can give probiotics during chemotherapy as long as neutrophil counts are reasonable. You know, they're not going to be normal necessarily, but as long as they're reasonable, we normally give low to medium dose probiotics, not really, really high dose probiotics. And it can, it has been shown in our meta-analyses that it can reduce the risk of um, and the severity of chemotherapy-induced diarrhea depending on the preparation, depending on the chemo, and there's lots of intricacies of that that we, people can go through. But to me, this is just a part of it. You know, as we know, probiotics are very specific things, but food is what modifies your gut microbiome properly and permanently, unlike probiotics. And this is what the focus should be. Sometimes we, we, there is a focus too much on the fancy things. Let's do that probiotic bit. I'm like, to me, Let's talk about food, because food is what's going to nourish you on multiple levels and not just cover the gut microbiome angle either. 
And I think it's that analogy of, you know, it's all good and well taking lots of protein shakes and supplements, but if you're not going and doing the gym work and doing the exercise, it, it, it's pretty irrelevant, right? Absolutely. And sometimes that's what makes me laugh about my, my, my patients being told, here's your Atcal G3. Um, and this is going to protect your bones. And I go, ha ha, this is hilarious. And, and nobody gives them an idea of actually, number one, is that vitamin D level sufficient to give them bone protection? Now, is that calcium in absorbable form enough that they're going to be able to tolerate? And sometimes they get given protein pump inhibitors. I'm like, you can't even break that thing down. And then nobody gets ex advice on exercise and how to actually maintain a healthy bone mass. And I'm going, yeah, it's use it or lose it. You can take calcium to the cows come home and vitamin D to the cows come home. But if you don't move and if you don't stress the bone, you're not going to have good bone density. Finally, just on the point of actually sort of live oncology care, when people are sort of dealing with a diagnosis and going through treatment, is there some data or some strong sort of evidence out there to say that, you know, having a functional medicine approach or an integrative approach in conjunction with... Uh, mainstream medicine does lead to a better health outcome. Absolutely. And actually, we've had a couple of different papers come out over the last couple of years to say that uh, even if we improve um, institutional engagement, they're mostly US trials because, to be honest, that's where integrative oncology um, is, I guess, more widely studied. Here, we're still in its infancy. But certainly in the US, we, there were a couple of trials more recently, or a couple of observational studies more recently, actually, where they've taken institutions and they've, they've compared how going from low institutional engagement or no institutional engagement to even just low to medium could increase breast cancer patient survival, and it sig increases significantly. And we also saw another paper that shows that integrative oncology has significantly improved survival in advanced gynecological cancer patients, which can be some of the hardest patients to treat. So we do have, we do appear to have survival benefits that may be cross cancer types for integrative oncology. Do we need more data? Yes, we need more data. But there's also really exciting um, trials that are being done on some components of integrative oncology. So, for example, there was a prehab trial in esophageal cancer that showed that if you engage people in an exercise-based uh, prehabilitation program, you could downstage shrink their tumours before they got to the next intervention, like surgery, which is huge. Thinking about the morbidity that these patients can have you know, with, with their esophagus, if you can have a small operation, less damage, lives are transformed. So, And this is exercise-based prehab. So to me, and actually reading all of the prehab trials, there is no doubt now that exercise and prehab needs to be part of standard of care all the time, no question. So moving on from sort of live oncology and people that are sort of dealing with it at the moment, we've talked about dysbiosis in the microbiome, low-grade inflammation, poor diet, and, and the correlation between that and people developing uh, cancers. Just wanted to say that there's also going to be the genetic background. There's polygenic SNP influences that are going to be playing a role. Wider environmental influences, not just dysbiosis, but you know, environmental exposures. There's going to be all sorts of other things in play. And I think what I teach in the systems approach to cancer courses for professionals and what I practice is that personalized approach in terms of I will go through everybody's systems, you know, from the gut to psycho-emotional well-being to HPA access to trauma history, as much as I will go over all of their genetic SNP data if there is something available in their current biochemistry. Personalize this key. More is not better. So more supplements or more lots of interventions isn't necessarily better. Personalized is better and targeted is better. Whether we're talking about, um, you know, this is the predisposition of genetics, um, if it's, uh, you know, an environmental impact, something in your workplace, air pollution, or whether it's, uh, you know, a, a product of your lifestyle choices, what you are saying or what we do believe is that there are things that you can do across all of those boards in, in a preventative approach. It's not as simple as, well, if it's genetic, you get it or you don't. We are starting to understand that actually there are things that you can be doing in a, in a preventative measure 
the data does suggest that they do have an impact on, on the outcome of, of, of a diagnosis, I believe. Absolutely. And I think that when people doubt that, you can even point them to some big gene studies. So as we know, there's this what's called complex polygenic inheritance. So lots of little genes, lots of SNPs, those little single letter variants in our genetic code that each contribute a tiny level of risk and together they will make me add up to quite significant risk. It's actually estimated that, for example, in breast cancer, you know, BRCA1, BRCA2 accounts for maybe a maximum of 20% of all familial breast cancer. Where's the rest of it? Explain BRCA1 and BRCA2. Sure. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 are genes that uh, carry a very strong familial predisposition to breast cancer. And they're the genes that are involved in the DNA damage repair pathway. Um, so if you get this kind of mutation, a BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation, then the likelihood of getting breast cancer by the age 80 is 70 to 74%. So it's a massive risk. So even, but in even these, what we call high penetrance genes, let alone the tiny SNPs, physical activity carries a significant risk reduction, despite the genetics, despite very strong genetics. So we know what we do every day carries a massive impact in terms of cancer risk down the line, no matter what your genetics is. And what we are looking at now, certainly in you know, precision medicine, precision health, is looking at maybe some of those smaller genes and some of the other little SNPs, how do they all end up at, to a risk? But also, how do we use lifestyle and nutrition to modify the activity or the expression of some of these genes to create a personalized plan that will enable someone to stay healthy? And so 20 years from now, do you believe that this, that the oncology and cancer support is going to be the personalization is going to be a far larger component of that care structure? Absolutely. And I would like to see it extend beyond just medication. We're already looking at something called precision oncology. So that's about using really comprehensive tumor profiling as well as genetic profiling to deliver more personalized oncology regimes. So that's already a a rapidly developing field. But what I'd like to see uh, is going beyond that because going beyond the tumor or even things that influence tumor biology, looking at the person, okay, because the tumor developed in a person. And I don't really want all the focus to be so narrow. I want us to look at the person about what might predispose them to chronic low-grade inflammation, what might be the what we call G times E or GXE, gene times environment interactions that led them to this path or might potentially lead them to that path in 20 years' time. So let's intervene now because, as we know, prevention is better than cure, as the adage goes. So we need to be able to do more. And I do think that with the current advance in technology like next-generation sequencing, with big data, with machine learning, you know, really, really taking off within healthcare, you know, in 20 years it could be a completely different ballgame. Someone's going to listen to this today and they're going to go away tomorrow and that's it. They get a low inflammation diet, kick out alcohol, you know, and it will last all of seven to 10 days on a, on a, on a kind of good run. And I think what is, what is actually really, really helpful, it'd be interesting to hear from your perspective. What are the sort of uh, big uh, hitters that you think, you know, small things that can make a really big impact in people's lives as far as sort of, uh, you know, cancer prevention? Good question. I always think that take a, an action per area of your life a day, like in a week, for example. Don't try and do everything at once. Like you said, if you try and do everything, the horse and the apple cart, you really are going to get very far. But simple things like say this week, just try and eat more colours. Just try and eat every color of the rainbow and try and get some herbs and spices in there. Try and get some diversity variety. We know it will increase your antioxidant intake. It will help your gut microbiome diversity. It will support your multiple different levels. Maybe next day you'll be like, okay, well, I'm in a sedentary job, so I don't move all day. Why don't I take a lunchtime walk or why don't I do something to move? Dance around the kitchen. I don't care what you do. 
So I think it's again talking about those four core foundations. So small things you can do within each bed. So if number one in nutrition is an anti-inflammatory diet, however colorful anti-inflammatory you can make it, that's great. You don't need to go keto, you don't need to go restrictive, you don't need to cut things out. Put things in, put color in, put herbs and spices in, put mushrooms, put cruciferous vegetables, berries, all of those things. You can actually put more in and crowd out with the good rather than trying to take stuff out. In physical activity, that's an essential you don't need to run. If you hate running, don't run. You know, do something else, but move your body because our bodies are designed to move. And that physical movement changes our gene expression and reduces the risk of multiple diseases. And normally when I talk to people about physical exercise, I talk to them about at least three legs of the stool. We need a fourth when we get older. So that's about aerobic activity, resistance training, and flexibility. And as we get older, we need balance as well. Uh, but whatever fun things you can do, and th there is no one best form of exercise, is whatever you're going to do consistently and gives you joy is what you need to be doing. Sleep is essential. Actually, sleep has been very well documented in terms of sleep deprivation and poor sleep quality. Not only been documented to increase the risk of multiple chronic diseases, including risk of cancer, but also is a prognostic factor and can really influence people's tolerance of treatment, etc. So get your sleep sorted, basically. That's my, my, my one big message. Whatever it and takes. When a client sits in front of you and they say, oh, well, I, I really struggle to sleep and I wake multiple times in the night. What is your general approach to that? How do you, you know, how do you advise people? Or what, how, what, what's a successful way to get on top of your sleep? Because we know how important it is in your recovery. Well, that is also links in a little bit of the psycho-emotional well-being into it. But really, we unpick why is the sleep poor. So really, from the moment they get up to the moment they go to sleep, as well as what happens over that sleep time, we unpick the whole routine. So are you getting up in the morning? Are you getting morning light exposure to reset your circadian clock? Are you coming back home and you haven't done any movement because physical activity affects sleep quality? Um, are you coming home and then are on your phone until the moment you put your iPhone down by your bedside and try and shut your eyes and go to sleep. Because as we know, that's not going to work in terms of blue light exposure, as well as the impact that maybe reading news late at night might have on someone. So unpicking that routine and getting used to the fact that our nervous systems do need a wind down period in the evening. Mm. We do need to not only manage light exposure, but also manage our psycho-emotional exposures at that point in the day. And I often talk to people about the fact that look at how we treat kids, right? There's a whole kit and caboodle that comes with trying to get them to sleep, right? There's a bath and there's a book <laughs> and there's cuddles and there's dim lighting and there's all sorts of things that we do. But we expect as an adult, we should be able to just go to sleep like that. And mm. no, sorry, nervous systems are more complicated than that. So essentially you're, you're saying get someone to read you a nighttime story. Is <laughs> hey, if it's Stephen Fry, I, I'm all up for that. You know, <laughs> I'm good with that. <laughs> I do, it, it's funny though, because I found myself one of the, the single best things I ever did for my sleep was I started reading fiction. <laughs> best thing. I Absolutely. Did. I just, I'd never really read much fiction in my life. And now every night when I go to bed, I get into a book and now I rarely get past through. It takes me about a year to read a book. I get about two and a half pages in and I'm, I'm kind of, You're out. but that it's, you know, our go to, isn't it? Is let's go and find something that's going to make me sleep. Yeah. And the irony is if you're taking a, a sleeping tablet, it's, it's probably doing more harm than good to the quality of your sleep. So it, it, in some ways it, it, it's so funny, this kind of alternative approach, even though there is so much science about it, it is also about a, big bucket of common sense you know it, that idea of like well if it sounds right it kind of probably is going to be right um and i think that's a really nice thing to kind of take away is just get the real simple things right put more good things into your diet than stressing about taking things out don't make food a punishment you know, Absolutely. that's one of the really big things and just try and find joy in your days and don't read the news 10 minutes before you go to bed because it's gonna make you stressed Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be rocket science. You know, at some points there is elements of our lives when, when we're really sick, when we've got lots of really big problems, that's when you need rocket science. Preventative health really doesn't have to be complicated. It does need to be 
suitable for you and something you do consistently. That's really important. Like you said, it's about consistency. It's not about trying to go hell for leather for seven to ten days and then go, oh, I give up on this. It's way too hard. Uh, Dr. Nina Funnacheval, I'm just very pleased there are people like you in the world. Um, And if someone's listening to this right now and they know they are experiencing themselves or they know somebody that is suffering, you can go on Google Synthesis Clinic. And if somebody, you know, uh, just wants to learn more about an integrative approach to oncology, is there anywhere that you would you would send them or, 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 you know, things that you would, you know, books or anything like that that you would recommend? Well, I think it depends on who's looking. So, again, if you have a healthcare professional on your side who might be interested in exploring an integrative approach with you, then do go to bsio.org.uk. That's the British Society for Integrative Oncology. And we also have a partner organization in the U.S. called Society for Integrative Oncology. Lots of resources for professionals there to start with. And then if you are interested yourself, there's a few things. If you're looking at kind of more preventative care, the Anti-Cancer Living is a really good book by Lorenzo Cohen, for example, to explore. I think if you're going through treatment, what's really important is to not get lost on the Internet. So I will just caveat that. Don't try and go to internet as your reliable source of information what to do during cancer treatment because you are honestly going to get so much rubbish and you're going to become hopelessly confused. So get professional support. And again, if we at Synthesis can't help, we normally have directories of people that we refer to who are well qualified, the number of professionals. Penny Braun UK is a great charity that, again, thinking about budget. We want to be able to use charities. Penny Brown UK and Yes to Life are both fantastic integrative cancer charities that may be able to get someone in the first steps to trying to adopt a more integrative approach to their care. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be expensive. There's lots and lots of things that you can do to get started. And a big thank you to, to Dr. Nina Fuller-Chevelle. What an amazing lady. Um, if you have enjoyed the Gutology podcast, if you've listened all the way through from season one, thank you. I hope it's been valuable to you. It's why we do this. Um, uh, if you are feeling particularly enthusiastic today, then jump on to uh, Spotify or iTunes and, and leave us a review. It really does have a huge uh, impact. And if you're not following us on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube, please do go and do the same if you are personally struggling with digestive issues then our team are here to help you just head to gutology.co.uk and click get started until next time i'll see you